So I think the question begs to be answered tonight uh, before we, we begin. Can anyone tell me the definition of a house? Yeah, that was for those of you that caught that one. Um, anyways, um, if you don't get it, just ask somebody next to you. They should get it. Um, how many times in your life have you been in a place where you wondered, what in the world are you doing, God? I mean, how many times have you been in that place where you knew what you wanted to do, and you knew what you thought God should want you to do, but it wasn't close to what He actually wanted you to do? And tonight, we're going to um, I'm going to stretch a little bit here, and I'm going to try to combine two things that I've never really combined before. Um, but we're going to try it tonight. And uh, so if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 14. Um, we're going to begin there. We're going to be in the book of Matthew tonight, the whole, all night. Um, and it's really just two passages. Um, but I want to spend some time kind of talking about this. I was at a conference last Thursday and Friday uh, right outside of Atlanta. Awesome, awesome conference. Um, and the whole time I was there, God just kept pouring on me really two things. And one of them is kind of insignificant to us in here tonight, but the other one I think has major significance to us. And in simplicity, it was Jesus. And that's so simple to say, and, and you're like, well, there's got to be more than that. And like Noah came in every Wednesday, Noah comes in, and Noah's like, so he says it funny, and I like how he says it. What are you speaking to? I don't, know, I don't know why I think that's funny, but I think that's funny. And so he said, what are you speaking to tonight? And I said, well, I'm speaking to, um, how, I'm speaking to Jesus, which he means what are you speaking about, and that's why it's kind of funny. But, you know, speaking about Jesus, you know, and he was like, okay. You know, because, I mean, in the whole Bible about Jesus, I mean, any, any clarity there, any, you know, you know, want to go deeper there, and uh, Jesus. And really and truly, the whole time I was there, over those two days, Jesus is it. I mean, that's what kind of reigned over me while we were there. And I think so many times in church, we kind of put Jesus over here and say, okay, we got Jesus, now let's talk about this. Or now let's worry about this, or now let's do this, when Jesus is the central figure to it all. And to place Jesus over here on the bookshelf is completely opposite of what we're supposed to do. And so tonight I want to try to bridge this gap a little bit because the disciples were in a place where they had an agenda, but Jesus had a completely different agenda here. Uh, Matthew 14, picking up in verse 13. Probably heard this story before. If not, hold on because it's going to knock your socks off. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Common occurrence there in Jesus' ministry. He has compassion on people. Now, we're going to talk about that tonight, but just note that. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. 
send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So here's what's happening here. Let me paint a picture for you real quick of what's happening, okay? Jesus and the disciples are tired. I mean, have you ever been tired? I mean, when you I mean, I'm talking tired. I'm talking they have been at it. And so they withdraw to a solitary place. You know those days when you get home, you throw your book back down, you go up to your bed, you slam the door, not out of anger, just because you're so tired you can't think, and you just fall on the bed and you're like, don't wake me for a week. I mean, they are wore out. But because Jesus is Jesus, the crowds don't care that they're tired. The crowds don't care that they're going to a solitary place to be alone. They simply follow And I think it's kind of fascinating how they follow. It says Jesus gets into a boat and crosses over the water. Well, the people just walk. I mean, they were so interested in being with Jesus that they walked around the entire body of water that he sailed around or sailed through. And so they get there. Jesus has compassion on them because Jesus doesn't really ever see anybody that he doesn't have compassion on. And he begins healing their sick. And so the disciples are sitting there going, oh, he's doing it again. I'm so tired. Why can this not wait? We just need a nap. And so evening's approaching and the disciples are like, okay, here's our chance. It's evening time. They're getting hungry. Man, they are cranky. It is time to send them away, Jesus. Send them into the town. Let them get food so that we can sleep. Because that's all we want. We want to rest. And I know what they're going to do. They're going to get so mad. I mean, they're going to they're pull poor Paul over here and start eating him. You know, if we don't... That Paul wasn't there, so I don't know why I picked Paul. But, you know, figuratively speaking, you know. We're going to pick this Bob over here. And they're going to start eating him. They're so hungry. Jesus, send them to town. And so they had one agenda here, an agenda to please themselves, an agenda to get what they thought they deserved, an agenda to get rest, when Jesus had a completely different agenda that would blow their minds. Jesus replied, they don't don't need to go away, give them something to eat. Uh, disciples talking here. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. All right, let's fast forward just a little bit to understand why this is such a preposterous sentence. Because in verse 21, it says, The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay? So let's just roughly estimate here. When you add in the women and children, 7,000. Okay, probably a whole lot more. Probably closer to 10,000, but we're just going to roughly estimate 7,000 for argument's sake. So they're sitting here, 7,000. I mean, who in here has ever been in a place, period, where 7,000 people or more were there? Anybody? Okay, we got a few. All right. A lot of you in this room have never even been in the vicinity, in the same place, with 7,000 people, okay? 7,000 people sitting out here, wanting to be near Jesus. Jesus having compassion on them, going through the crowd, healing people, the disciples dragging along going, I just want to sleep, Jesus. Finally, when it becomes night, the disciples are like, here's our chance. Jesus, tell them to go. They will listen to you. 
And Jesus is like, uh, why? Give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, hello, have you not seen our storehouse over here? Five loaves of bread and two fish. That's all we got. I mean, if Timothy gets hungry, I mean, we don't even have enough for him. And Jesus is like, hmm. But you see, I have an agenda here. It's far greater than any of y'all's. And so the story continues. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Which is pretty amazing, okay? 7,000 people out there, and somehow Jesus was able to yell loud enough for them to sit down. I, don't, I mean, I need a microphone to talk to like 50, you know, and he's got 7,000, they all sit down. In case you don't know, they didn't have microphones back then. That's why that's kind of amazing. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Now, verse 21 is probably the biggest verse in the entire passage. I mean, verse 20, excuse me, is probably the, mo- the biggest verse in the entire passage. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Five loaves of bread, two fish, 7,000 people. All ate and were satisfied. But it doesn't stop there. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. All right, trivia question. How many disciples were there? 12. Thank you, Ryan. How many baskets did they pick up of leftovers? Anybody want to think that's a coincidence? I don't. 12 disciples, 12 basketfuls of leftover. What has just happened? They all get one basket, yeah. The disciples are tired. They are worn out. They want the crowd to go away. Jesus says, you don't get it. I have an agenda that's far different from anything you can imagine. So just hold on for a second because I'm about to blow your mind. Bring the five measly loaves and the two little fish to me. Breaks them. I mean, can you imagine them? I mean, can you imagine? You're the first disciple to get your little handful that you're going to pass out. I mean, you're like, really? I mean, this is going to go to two people, and I mean, I'm going to get killed because I didn't give it to the other 6,998 people. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Jesus, really? And he's like, go. They all ate and were satisfied. I don't have a clue how it happened. I have no, I have no earthly idea how it happened. 7,000 plus people ate and were satisfied. But that wasn't the end. Because then Jesus says, okay guys, y'all full? Y'all got enough? Okay, good. Uh, Y'all need to go get the leftovers. What? I mean, Jesus, it was crazy enough that you started with five loaves and two fish and fed everybody. I mean, that, was, that just was crazy enough, blew our minds. Leftovers? I mean, really, Jesus. I mean, we started with like this. And you want us to go pick up leftovers? Yeah, as a matter of fact, here's your basket. Go around and collect them. And when they're done, each one of them comes back with a basket full of leftovers. I submit, I wasn't there, I don't know. I don't know, I really don't know the 
poundage of food they started with and the poundage of food they ended with. But I submit that they probably had more leftovers than they began with. What? I mean, how does that happen? How does that work? I mean, you are in the midst of this crisis. 7,000 hungry people. That's a crisis. I mean, when we're on a trip and y'all get hungry, it's a crisis. Okay? 7,000 remote area. Okay? I mean, they're like down in Wayside, and they got to walk up here to the McDonald's. I mean, probably even more remote than that. I mean, remote area, nothing around. Send them away, Jesus. Nope. Twelve basketfuls. Leftover. From five loaves of bread and two fish. By the way, in case you were wondering, Jesus does this twice in his ministry. We're not going to look at the other one, but he does it twice in his ministry, so it wasn't a fluke or anything. I would imagine he probably did. I don't know. All right, turn over to Matthew chapter 6. This is where it's going to get interesting, me trying to tie this together, so hold on for the ride and we'll see what happens. Chapter 6, verse 25, begins this. We're going to read a little bit of this, and then you're going to, we're going to get to a a verse here that many of you are, it's going to like ding, ding in your head, you know, because if you've been around for a little while, you've heard it and you know it. But we're going to start in verse 25. It says, this is Jesus talking. He's given the Sermon on the Mount, longest sermon he's ever given, recorded in the Bible. And he's kind of towards the end, kind of wrapping things up here. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. I mean, that's kind of familiar here. I mean, the disciples are over here worried about what these people are going to eat. And Jesus is like, uh, don't worry about it. Jesus is here. Okay, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and your body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Back note, Solomon here, the wisest king, the wisest person ever, king of Israel, son of David, okay, so like massive wealth, regarded as one of the wealthiest kings ever in the history of the world. And so that's the significance to Solomon here, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. That one should sting a little bit. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That should sting a little bit too there. But instead... This is Jason's addition here. I have a better way. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay. Let's see if I can bring all this kind of together here in the short time we have left over. I think there's two things that happen to us. 
I think the first thing is as the disciples to which we just saw. I think there's a time in our life that things are going good. We're following Christ. I mean, we're not really understanding all that Christ is doing, but, you know, we're, we're kind of sensing, okay, Christ is doing something here, and I want to be a part of that. I want to follow him. I want to see this to the end. I want to I be what he is. I want to have what he's got. And then we get into this crisis time. We get into this mode in our life where we're going, okay, uh, Jesus, um, you don't understand because this is the best way. I know. I'm 16. I'm passing chemistry. I got it. Best way right here. And God's over here going, um, hello, you don't understand. God, creator of the universe, created chemistry that you are barely passing. Best way. But yet we have this kind of little internal argument with God. No, 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 really, because you don't understand. Best way right here, do it the way I want it. And then God doesn't do it that way. Because God is God, and God is God, and that's all that he really needs to be, and all we really need to be concerned with. And so in our little finite world, in our little world in which we're living God comes in and does something completely differently, and our world is kind of like, uh, hello. Um, really? And we find ourselves stuck in this moment to which we have a handful, figuratively speaking, so hang on here, of broken bread and fish. And 7,000 people who need to eat. And we look at God and we're like, uh, God, not best way. I mean, I told you, passing chemistry, doing pretty well in algebra, understand this does not equal this. Got that. Not best way. And God's up there looking down going, would, would you just follow me? I mean, really, would you just look to me? Would you just let me take that and give you that in return? Because that's the plan I have. Because I'm looking at it from a different lens than you are. I'm looking at it from a God-heavenly perspective. And you're looking at it from a pagan worldly perspective and so let's kind of keep that over here and let's move over here because I think we find ourselves also sitting in this place of oh my gosh what am I going to do I mean I have no clue where I'm going to go to college I have no clue what I'm going to be and I'm a freshman in high school no clue what I'm going to be when I grow up if you're a freshman in high school, if you're a sophomore in high school, if you're a junior in high school, if you're a senior in high school, if you're a freshman in college, and you don't know what you want to be, it's okay. Don't tell your parents I said that. It really is, though. I didn't know what I wanted to be till I was a junior in college. 
and a year after I graduated, God changed it all completely anyway. So, college student speaking here. So, don't worry. And so many times we find ourselves in this, well, what are they going to say? What if they treat me bad? What if they don't like me? What if my prom dress isn't just the perfect one? I've never been there. I don't know. I mean, I was told what color the roads had to be. You know, I mean, so, yes, ma'am. Yes, okay. You know. And we sit here and we worry about these things. And God's over here going, look at me. Look, at, look up here. Look at what I've got. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I have done. Because all of that means nothing in my world. I uh, had a conversation with somebody yesterday. Somebody came in. We were sitting in my office. And if you've been in my office, some of you have, some of you haven't. And uh, I went to college at Clemson University. Boo if you want to. I don't care. And um, loved it. When I was eight years old, I think, around eight years old, my parents for Christmas gave me this big picture. And it's hanging in my office right now. And I'm, this has no spiritual value yet at all. But we're going to kind of hopefully get there. It's a big picture of the Clemson football stadium. But it, what's cool about it to me, you don't care because you don't like Clemson, but just hang with me. Noah has a Clemson shirt on, so he's cool tonight. You know. But... uh What's cool about it to me is it's the old, old, old stadium. I mean, like it's, like, it's the same stadium we have today, like in the current place, but it's like three expansions ago. And so there's like one upper deck, and that's it. And you like see straight into the stadium, and it's this really cool stadium, and now it's got two double decks, and they connect, and it sees like 80,000 people, almost as big as um, Sanford Stadium. And, uh, you know, so big stadium, not that big in the picture. But this person was sitting in my office yesterday, and they were looking at it. And what's kind of funny is all the pictures in my office, you don't care about this either, but I'm trying to make the story make sense, have the same frame and have the same matting. And the person was like, man, you playing that good. I was like, no, not really. They all came at different times. It was just luck of the draw, really. And, um, and, I, cause I, and so I was explaining when I got them. You know, I was explaining, okay, I got these when I graduated college. I got these when, and I said, now that one, though, I got when I was eight. And at first I was like, oh, so, I mean, you knew you were going to Clemson when you were eight years old. And I was like, not really. I mean, when I was eight, you know, my blood runneth orange and purple. But then it was orange and blue, and now it's orange and purple, and I'm not real sure when that switched, but it did. And um, just, just, just. And so there was always a part of me inside that knew or that wanted to go to Clemson. My dad started there, but he didn't graduate from there. He graduated from another college. And so it's kind of like, man, I would love to go there and graduate from there. And it got time. It's my junior year. I was filling out applications into my junior year. Sent them off to, you know, whatever, how many colleges, I don't even know really. And I was a golfer. Make fun of me if you want. And Britt won't, exactly. 
And I had a couple golf scholarships. I mean, like, I could have gone to these schools to play golf, and I was kind of psyched about that. I was like, man, that'd be fun. Didn't have one to Clemson because Clemson is a great golf team. They won the national championship while I was there, but I'm not good enough to play for them. You know, and so I had all these offers over here, and, and this story really isn't about me. I'm just trying to make a point here. And I got an acceptance letter from Clemson in, like, November of my senior year because they did this early thing. And for some reason inside of me, there was this complete and utter peace that Clemson was where I was supposed to be. I mean, I had these scholarships lined up over here. I mean, like full ride, play golf, love golf. These schools over here, you know, great schools in their own right. Nothing to Clemson, really. But I had this peace. And I can't understand it because I would be lying if I stood here and said I prayed about it. I didn't. I was a senior in high school. You know, I was starting to understand what God was. I was starting to understand about Christ and, and about how all that worked. But I, I didn't get it. But for some reason, when that letter came in the mail, there was a peace over me. I'd been, I mean, I had been worried. I had been stressing. I mean, I was like, man, I don't know where to go. Because you're like, I mean, you're sitting here thinking, okay, now, if I go here, then my life's going this direction. If I go here, then my life's going this direction. If I go here, then my life's going this direction. Oh my gosh, well, how do I make this decision? What was clear to me after I got to Clemson was it was never a decision that I had to make. Because it was a decision God made a long time ago. And I don't know why he made it. I don't know why he wanted me to go to Clemson in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I kind of know why, because it was at Clemson that I really found him, and I began to understand who he was and what he meant in my life and how much he loved me and the depravity of my sin. But so many times since then, I look at what's in front of me. And instead of looking at him, I look at my circumstances. I look at what's right here. I look at how I'm going to fix this. I look at what do y'all need to hear. As if I could ever say anything into you that was worthwhile. I look at What's going to sound good coming out of my mouth? What's going to make me look good to everybody around me? And a funny thing happens. I get tired. I mean, I seriously feel like a dog chasing my tail. And that's, a, that's kind of funny to watch if you ever see that. Our dog does that occasionally. But I do. And I've kind of felt like over the last six months or so, that's kind of been what I've been doing in my personal life. And I'm just being a little vulnerable here with y'all. But I feel like I've been chasing my tail. I mean, I feel like I've been looking at what is in front of me and the decisions that I need to make and the person that I need to be 
and the things that I need to do. And the answers and solutions that I have. And I'm looking at these crumbs. I'm looking at this broken bread. I'm looking at this, these fish. And I'm going, I mean, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen, God. And sadly, more times than not, I've just thrown them in the trash can. And I've sought my own way and my own thoughts. For the pagans run after all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's a verse that I came across in college that I know almost every time I preach, I'm like, this is my favorite verse ever. There's truth behind that because lots of times when I'm preaching it, I'm like, man, this is my favorite verse right now, you know, kind of thing. There's a verse that I came across in college that has never left me. It's 1 Corinthians 4.18. It says, so fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And folks, I jokingly told Noah that I was going to stand up here for 30 minutes and just repeat the name of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if really and truly that's not what our lives should look like. That everywhere we go, that everything we do, that every word that comes out of our mouth is Jesus. It's so easy to focus on what's right here. It's so easy to look right here and say, but this is what's going on in my life right now, and I know the best way. But there's a God in heaven who created you. The Bible says of this God that he knows the very numbers of hair on your head. For some of your fathers, that may be easy to count. For most of us in here, that's kind of hard. Mine's getting easier every day, but... Sad news, I know. It's okay. Come to grips with it. But there's a God who knows... Get this, because this is what blows me away. There's a God in heaven who knows every fault you've ever done. There's a God in heaven who knows every sin you've ever committed. There's a God in heaven who knows every single bad thing about you. There's a God in heaven who has seen every shameful thing you have done. There's a God in heaven 
who knows that we deserve death. But the thing that blows me away is that very God sent His Son to die on a cross so that it all would be washed clean. And yet so often my response, and I feel ours, is to turn from that to the pagan things of this world. I'm not talking about drug, sex, and rock and roll. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not talking about stealing, murdering, and lying. I'm talking about when we take our focus off of Jesus. And put it on something else. When we put it on somebody else. And we become no different than those who are far from God. I think the challenge of the day, this is it. And I'm going to wrap up. Band, it's got a song we're going to close with. Y'all can come on up if you want. I think this is the challenge. And I, I'm going to say this, and I, I don't mean this lightly at all when I say this, because I think that your generation, you in this room, and those of you of your age around this world, I think God has a plan for y'all that no one understands yet. I think God has a plan for your generation that you would shake the face of this world. The question is, will you seek first His righteousness and His kingdom and let everything else come along? Because you turn on the news, you listen to your parents talk maybe when you're riding in the car, We're in tough times right now as a world. Economically, I mean, crisis is everywhere, war, I mean, all this crap going on. But there's a God in heaven who's got it under control. There's a God in heaven who understands exactly why he's doing what he's doing. And there's a God in heaven who has a plan for each one of you in this room. And I firmly believe that he wants to use you to shake the ground of this nation. To shake the ground of this world. I, I, I believe he wants to use you to end poverty. I mean, that's big. I mean, that's bold. I mean, that's, that's huge. But I do. I think he wants to use your generation to solve problems that no one has ever solved before, but not for your own reward. Not for some Nobel Peace Prize, not for some election, not for anything other than His glory and His renown. And that's why I'm here. And that's why many of these adults are here to stand before you and say, we've screwed up, we've messed up. God's still in control. Seek first His kingdom 
and his righteousness. And all these things will be given unto you. My prayer is that we would really believe that. That we would really understand that and take hold of that. And that Christ would truly be the center of our life. And that a shoebox at Christmas wouldn't be the only thing we do all year. That coming to church on Easter wouldn't be our worship experience for the year. That coming to church every Sunday of the year wouldn't be where we place our hope. but that we would follow Christ with everything we've got. Because I can guarantee you when that happens, you can write it down, you can put it anywhere you want, that when you come to the table, looking at the face of Christ, seeking Him above everything else, and you look down at your hand, and all you've got is a piece of bread and a piece of fish, Man, you're going to walk away with a basket full of leftovers. Let's stand and sing.